I'm reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The visit of the wise men. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. I'm reading from Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God 
in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Well, we weren't sure if the tree was going to make it. If you come and look at it, you'll see it is beginning to look a bit, bit tired, but it has been with us since the beginning of Advent, which was on November the 29th. And it will be dismantled this afternoon, and it will disappear into the recycling tomorrow. And why did we keep it so long? Well, apart from the fact that having lots of lights up in the church at this time of year when there's little sunlight is just wonderful, um, it is because we are still within the Christmas period. January the 6th, or in our case, the nearest Sunday to January the 6th, is the time when we take down the decorations, what we traditionally have kept as Twelfth Night, the end of Christmas. It's the day when we remember the arrival of the wise men, the Magi, the visitors from the east, as Matthew calls them. So that's what we're doing this morning. This story of the visitors from the east only occurs in Matthew's telling of Jesus' life, but since during this year, the lectionary, that um, agreed series of readings that many churches use, will be concentrating on Matthew's gospel. Uh, so we'll be hearing quite a lot of it at various points during the year. It's a useful moment to hear what he's saying at the very beginning with this story of the visitors from the East and the themes that he's touching on and how they might impact and shape our life of faith. Because for all that it is a story to catch our imaginations, and it's a delight to stage when it comes to the nativity play, or it makes a wonderful picture on the Christmas cards, there's a lot more to it than just a romantic tale with little or no significance beyond something exotic that just provides interesting pictures. And we could say so much about it, so much about traveling, about the way the arrival of the visitors is to do with the whole world being called to the cradle, the way that Paul has reflected in that reading from, that, that Barbara read to us, that, that reading about the, the whole world, the coming in of the Gentiles, nobody being excluded, that universality of the child's call. We could talk about the fact these visitors don't come by prophet-approved paths. They follow a star, and that's not what the Old Testament is big on. And we might want to reflect on about how people meet God and the way God calls people into faith. But today, I want to invite you to reflect on that bit of the story that so often appeals to us in the first reading, and the thing that can cause much grief to the stagers of the Nativity play, the three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. By no means the most important part of the story, as Matthew tells it, and yet there. Matthew doesn't simply say they opened their treasures and gave him gifts. He does actually name them. So they represent something. And each of the elements, the gold, incense and myrrh appear in various places in the words of the Old Testament and with multiple meanings. But Christian tradition has very firmly and from very early assigned quite specific meanings to each gift. Origin in the second century was already making the links that we sang about in the Carol of the Three Kings. And in the light of the themes of Matthew's gospel, we can make a good case for this identification. Gold for a king and frankincense for a priest and myrrh for death. Because each of these does appear as part of the account that Matthew gives of Jesus, not just as one-offs, but as whole themes. For Matthew, as for the other writers, Jesus preaches about the kingdom. The notion of kingship is central to his whole teaching. The conviction 
that if we are going to understand what Jesus is about, we need to grasp the idea of an alternative to the way the world is. And that's not just as an ideal or something that will happen after we die, but it's a way of being that is lived out by those who follow Jesus. When we read through the gospel and read the stories of the kingdom, the parables and the calls to the kingdom, it's about do this now. And it's not a natural outgrowth of good social policy or a set of structures that will gently develop from the way things are now. It's much more confrontational than that. And it demands a choice of allegiance. And by putting it right here at the beginning, Matthew makes that very clear. These visitors arrive at the heart of the existing monarchy. They go to Jerusalem and they find Herod and they demand to see the new king. And you don't get much more confrontational than that. And if we read on, we'd see how the existing rule fought back. This isn't a safe and secure and easy thing without a cost. Children are killed. Herod sends out his soldiers and kills all the boys under two. And it's tempting to say something tritely comforting like, well, the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God means all pain and tears will be wiped away. And that may be true. It doesn't change the story. These children were killed and the parents mourned. And even if we take refuge in the, well, it's the kind of story that gets built up and it may not literally have happened, escape, that doesn't change the fact that whether or not it happened then, it happens now. When there is conflict, when regimes and societies and communities are fighting for their existence the way Herod was, people die, children die. And the message of the kingdom isn't some trite, it won't hurt when God's in charge. Rather, it's the courage to look squarely at the horrors and the evil of the world and say, no, we will not stand with that. We will stand against it. We will not give our allegiance to the kings of this world's way of being, dependent on violence and destruction. And to acknowledge Jesus as king, to present him with the kingly gift of gold, was to set themselves against the rule of Herod, to put themselves in danger. They had to go home by another way. They gave their allegiance to another ruler, to one that would undermine, that was already seen to be undermining the powers that be. And there was a cost and a demand in that. The handing over of gold was not trivial. And it may be that the nearest we have to gold is our wealth, our money and our resources. And so perhaps the question is, which king, which rule and regime do our resources serve? We banged on a lot during the last year about giving and the need to give to the church to enable us as a church to function, and that matters, but only because it is part of something much bigger and stands for something much bigger. Later on, Matthew records Jesus' comment, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And here's the question this gift poses us. Who or what has our loyalty and our heart? Not just the well-thought-out, carefully-defined obedience, but the reflexive action that shapes so much of who we are. The things we do without thinking because they're just so natural and obvious. Where do we put our energy and our resources when we're just acting? And what loyalty does that reveal? 
This is about money, but not only that. We have other resources. We have other treasure. We have other ways of demonstrating what matters most to us and where we put most authority, where we locate our identity. And the reality is, if we are putting our treasure into the kingdom that is here in the infant, we will find ourselves at odds with the kingdoms of the world around us. And we'll have to make hard choices. And we will see difficulties that others are not aware of or, or won't admit or prefer just to pretend don't happen. We see the children being killed. We will have to see the pain and the struggle and we will have to take part in it, in resisting it and refusing it in ways that we might want to avoid. Children die when the kingdoms clash. It may not be literally de literal death, but it's not easy or comfortable for us or for others. But children die when oppression rules, and we can't not look at that. Not if we're citizens of the kingdom of God, not if we stand with these visitors from the east and give the gift that marks kingship to the child in the manger. And if that's where we want to be, then we do need to see the whole story. We do need to see the way that the ending empire is killing and resist it and refuse it. Where is it happening? Where do we need to be standing? What do we need to be doing? To hand over gold is not an easy thing. Frankincense is linked surely to the incense of worship. And again, it's central to Matthew's telling of Jesus' story that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. The whole point of the story that he's telling is to remind us that in this baby and young man and teacher and healer and executed criminal, God is with us. This is how God is with us. This is what it means to talk about God. This is what God looks like. The whole idea of the divinity of Christ, what it means to talk about Jesus as the Son of God is deeply debated. It's important to reflect on and here is at least part of Matthew's approach to it. As he depicts visitors bringing incense to the baby, he is demonstrating to his readers that if they want to know how God is with them, they want to know how to recognize God and what God looks like, then here it is. And again, it's in contrast with what's around in the whole story. Herod demanded, if not worship, because he was trying to be accepted by the Jews and so couldn't, but he demanded to be accounted as close to God. And the Roman emperor, who was the power behind Herod's throne, he was the reason why Herod was so afraid of a usurper, the Roman emperor was worshipped as divine and showed it by the exercise of power, by being separated from people, by being shielded, by being overbearing, by having the power literally of life and death. And instead, says Matthew, the God who is with us is with us like this. So how do we deal with it and what do we do with it? Matthew is clearly showing the readers through the response of the visitors what it means to recognize a different God and worship a different God from the ones in the rest of the community. So we would do well to ask what worship is going on around us and indeed within us. What is our equivalent of incense offered? Worship, as symbolized by this story, is shown by the incense. It is traditionally symbolic of the rising of the prayer to a distant divinity who can only be approached through certain rituals. And prayer in this understanding is both adoration and it is asking. It's a way of making contact with the power that is beyond. 
And what practices and symbols in our society put us in touch with a power beyond? One that we worship, one that we get something from. Simon Perry, who used to be my co-minister here, has written a book called Atheism After Christendom. And in that, he argues that the gods of this age are what he refers to as Mars and Venus. Mars, the god of war, and Venus, whom he identifies with the whore of Babylon and therefore with an economic system. Those of you who remember Simon will realize that this is a very dense and closely argued book, and I'm not going to try and summarize it here, even if I could. But I do think he is saying something really important about the gods of the age we are in, war and economics, and the way in which they relate, depend on each other, drive each other, how much of our economic well-being is dependent on our arms trade. And what impact does that then have on our foreign policy? They are the realities to which we look, we as a society, look for safety and to gain what we need. And Simon goes on to argue that the practices by which we approach and worship these gods include self-realization, the importance of meeting our own needs, of developing ourselves, absolute freedom of choice, of absolutizing toleration to the point of taking no firm view about anything in case we offend somebody, And here are the visitors from the east offering the marks of worship not in the expected place, not in the temples or to the expected gods, but to an infant. And what does it mean to us here and now if we see that this is what God looks like? And therefore the gods of our society, of our age, what Simon calls Mars and Venus, are not to be offered our worship through the approved practices but instead we are to worship and adore and trust in a God who is this Emmanuel. What might that change in how we behave? What questions might that raise for us about the choices we make in a society that values choice? About the things we will and won't stand for in a society that has absolutized toleration? And then that third gift, myrrh, the resin from the gum tree that's used in anointing and may at the first reading of this be associated with the anointing that goes along with the kingly nature. Kings were anointed as part, still are anointed as part of the ritual. Or perhaps the sign of adoration and devotion that we meet in other places in the gospel stories and Jesus' head is anointed or his feet, is, feet are anointed. Except that what it actually brings us is the death motif and it cannot be denied that is most likely, if there is symbolism at work here at all, which is most likely the myrrh here is symbolizing death and the anointing of a body. And as an introduction to the themes of the gospel, that would make sense. Because the gospel is dominated, both in the amount of space used and as a theme that runs through it all, is dominated by the crucifixion of Jesus. It kind of cuts across what the other two images might call up for us. For kings, at least kings in the mythic, in the role sense of the word, don't die. The king is dead, long live the king. Kingness survives. And divinity and death don't go together. And yet here it is. And in Christian tradition and teaching, the death of Jesus is about many things, but primarily about salvation. And God knows the world needs saving. The violence and oppression the economic inequality and the domination of powerful elites 
the horrors of needing to leave your home because fleeing in a tiny boat to an unknown future is preferable to the terror of destruction that's at home. The world needs saving, and we can see it all too clearly. Our society needs saving from the political divisions that we may joke about in civilized conversation, but that do scar our community, do lead to mistrust and fear of one another, do lead to people groups feeling afraid because of their skin color or their language or their orientation. Our society needs saving. It needs saving from superficiality and short-termism and from debt. And as Paul argued so eloquently, the news of salvation lies with the church, which is a glory and a grace. What a joy to be able to share it. But our churches need saving from forgetting how to speak the good news, from power structures that we import from other places and that distort the body of Christ among us, from divisions and bitterness that scar our history among the churches and our present and keep us apart in ways that lead us in some parts of the world to kill each other and in other parts of the world to a loss of hope and energy. And our individual churches, our congregations, our congregation need saving too from fear and anxiety, from wondering what we're for and how to do it, from turning in on ourselves and from the need to make others resemble us. The world needs saving and the churches need saving too. And the thing about salvation is that it involves death. The death of the dominating powers, the death of the self-willed intention, the death of the fear of the other, the death of the need to be secure at all costs, the death of violence as the answer, the death of the need to be right. The world needs saving and we in mercy and grace, in gift and God's generosity, we may be part of that. But we are not the saviours. Because we need saving too. We need saving from the compulsions that determine how we act when we're acting unreflectingly. Or distort who we are even when it's not what we want. Those addictions that hold us in thrall. We need saving from the hurts of the past that make us afraid of the future. Or so angry that we cannot trust. Or so despairing that we dare not hope. We need saving from the shame that we learn too early and that inhibits our capacity to be present to one another or to God, and from the guilt that causes us to judge each other harshly. We need saving from the need to prove our existence, or to justify it by being indispensable, or demonstrate it by being perfect, or even create it by being dazzlingly successful. We need saving from the fear of failing that means we dare not risk, and the fear of the other that means we cannot live, and the fear of death that means we barely are barely alive. And our salvation will mean death. Death of what we think we need and the death of our ego that struggles to survive and the death of our will to power and the conviction that we know best and death even and perhaps most of our pride and our self-sufficiency. But this gift is the reminder and the demonstration that if salvation involves death, it's not because we are the saviour, but because we need to be saved. It is the recognition that the one who has come has come to save us. And just as the visitors from the east recognized him, so we might and so we can. And do we? There needs to be saving. There needs to be redemption. There needs to be a breaking of the power of sin and hatred, of fear and violence. 
and we may in grace be involved in taking part in that but the power of it the place that it the form and the shape that it takes is not us it is Emmanuel God with us in the baby and the teacher the healer the crucified one the risen one the king who calls for our allegiance the one who shows us what God looks like in contrast to what we might expect the presence of salvation that challenges our self-sufficiency and undermines our sense of security all of that is present in these gifts but here is the greatest gift that what is offered is accepted that what we offer whatever however partially and tremblingly is accepted and God's love acts the gifts are offered but the gift we receive is what matters.